Hello and welcome back to Draycott Diaries. I'm delighted to introduce you to our new retrospective series. We have now recorded, I think, 34 live stories from around the community, which is going some and I still have many, many more ahead. This is an episode we recorded with the Reverend Stuart Burns back in 2019 in the hot summer. It's a wonderful story, a life that started in South Africa, met faith, lost faith, and eventually he turned up as our vicar of Draycott. I really hope you enjoy it. I pick up the conversation just as I've asked him when he first got a sense he was called to serve God. faith at the age of 20 actually through an experience I had working for six months with a a Christian outreach mission to homeless people in Washington DC it was kind of like a gap year and I returned to South Africa and studied theology and I felt called into the ministry of the church in my early 20s because of the extreme political situation we had in South Africa. My family were quite politically aware. Uh, We were wanting to do what we could to do our little bit to... This is apartheid. Yeah, bring about an end to racism and apartheid. And I was aware that the traditional churches, particularly Methodists, Anglicans and Catholics were in a way leading the movement of peaceful resistance against racism and white domination and nationalism. And as you and the listeners would be aware, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was the head of our church and he was at the forefront of the resistance, uh, always peaceful of course. So my vocation into the church was forms. In, in terms of an awareness of the church, had a responsibility to work for justice and I couldn't think of anything more important to do and I had a real personal faith and that's how I ended up being ordained which might seem like quite a strange way in but uh, everybody has their own story of vocation. Jumping ahead several years I left South Africa 20 years ago after several years of ministry in the church there. I left with my family, with our children who were aged two and four at the time. I had in my work and ministry in the church been involved in supporting a lot of people who were the victims of violence and uh, violent crime and racist crime. And I had done more than my fair share of uh, services for people who died as a result of crime and quite often close to home. And we decided that we didn't want to bring up our children in that country, so we left 20 years ago. Obviously, you witnessed brutality in the funerals and the families that you must have been with at difficult times in South Africa. Did you actually witness brutality yourself? Well, I witnessed riots when the all-white security forces attacked people who were on peaceful demonstrations, you know, people being tear-gassed and shot with rubber bullets. And In fact, 
had the experience of that myself, as did both my brothers, because students in South Africa were often supporting marches and demonstrations against injustice, as students do, and so it wasn't uncommon to uh, have that sort of experience, yeah, running away. <laughs> sure. Do you remember feeling fear? Uh, yes. And when I was at Theological College in South Africa, my friends and I were arrested because we were doing practical work as part of our training in churches that were in black-only areas. Our college wouldn't apply for permits because we thought there was a moral that people should be able to go to church where they liked. So we were quite often uh, harassed and watched and on one occasion arrested and had our passports taken. And so growing up as a teenager and in my 20s in a country like that is quite interesting. Uh, it was very formative in the kind of Christian I think I am. Tell me, Stuart, if you will, how you came then from South Africa over to this country and, and what happened in between? Because I know you've obviously ended up uh, Cheddar, Draycott and Rodney Stoke, but in the meantime, I don't think you came straight to us, did you? Yeah, thanks, Tiggy, for asking. Uh, because I think we've been too itinerant, which has been a bit uh, destabilising personally and for the family. Uh, there's a great deal to be said, I think, especially in church ministry and just staying in one place. Uh, but we started in uh, the Republic of Ireland in rural County Cork for a few years. Then we decided to move to England uh, because I have a lot of family in England and we had none in Ireland. And our children needed to know their cousins and their uh, other family, so we moved to a series of village churches just north of Salisbury for about seven years. And then I was in the type of job where the Church of England, uh, there's certain jobs where one can only do seven years and then must move on. And so an ex-colleague of mine had become the bishop in Belfast and they had an attractive vacancy and he asked me if I'd be interested. So we ended up in County Down in Northern Ireland. In again, uh, we're based in the county town of Downpatrick, mm -hmm. which is the burial place of Saint Patrick, and we were there for eight years. Three years ago, I moved here to be in Cello Draycott and Rodney Stoke again. I think because at the time, all my remaining family in South Africa decided to leave and come to live in England, and uh, all in the southwest. And so it just seemed right to move back to England. But it's been, I think, as I said, too much moving, and I don't really want to move again. No. Well, let's hope. Well, I, I, the only time I'd like you to move again, Stuart, is if you come to Draycott. We'd love to have you living in Draycott. Who knows in the future what might happen? There's just one question I'd like to ask you before we move on to, to, to the Draycott side of things. How do you get a job? Do you look in the paper and go, oh, look, they need a vicar here or anything? I mean, how does it work in the church? How? I mean, you say you came from South Africa, and I know that you know, your connection with Ireland, but how, and you know, you're, you, as you said, you had a friend who's in the church, obviously, but how do you apply for jobs or does somebody contact you and say, we would really like you to come and work in this area? In much of the world, in Anglicanism, 
it's uh, done the old way, and in South Africa, the bishop of the diocese would just appoint one and say, I want you to go there, and you go. And that's still the practice in the Roman Catholic Church worldwide. But in England and Ireland, and much of the Western world, I'm sure it's the same in the US, as an Anglican cleric, you have to apply, and the positions are advertised in the church press, uh, the Church Times is a worldwide Anglican newspaper, and one applies in writing, and is shortlisted and interviewed, and interview will last often several days, uh, meeting key people in the various churches, and an appointment is made. And so it's very much like a secular appointment, and that's what I have done uh, since leaving South Africa. That's how I've moved in every occasion. Is it like the NHS? I mean, there's a great shortage of doctors in the NHS. Are there? Is there a shortage of priests in the church? I think there is now. It's uh, vacant parishes in England are often advertised and re-advertised, and they might not get enough good applicants, and they have to do it again. When I read about and thought that this benefice was attractive, I know it wasn't the first time it had been advertised. Right, because nobody wanted it? No, there were a few who wanted it, but <laughs> it just wasn't wasn't a successful process. Ah, okay. There are not enough clergy, really, to go around. And I'm effectively on my own with three parishes. There, we, we have somebody who lives in Dracos, I'm delighted to say, who's training yes. to be a part-time curate. Who I'm going to be talking to. Is that Thea? Yes, yes, Thea. yes very and exciting. I, I'm really looking forward to getting help from Thea, who will be a part-time curate or assistant yeah. priest, and that's exciting. And I have two fantastic, hard-working, retired priests who help me, Judith and Hilary. In, they live in Cheddar, and they help me throughout the three churches. But... It's too much to do a job that I think I would be happy with, uh, being effectively the only full-time member of the clergy in, a, in three parishes. And if you go back 20 or 30 years, there would have been a priest in every little church, and often they had a curate as well. So this area that I cover, there might have been three or four or five, and now it's just one. I was going to say, because I know that you're a very compassionate man, and I know when we, we talked earlier, apart from all the services, which I know are important, I know for you, the community, talking to people, I mean, we've had a joyous chat today, haven't we? And I think, mm. I mean, I know, and I sense from you that, that meeting your parishioners and actually being able to do something and help them is probably for you in your heart kind of the, well, for a better word, the bit that you enjoy about the job. I know there must be many aspects, but would that be fair? Yeah, very much so, Tiggy. And it's that that I don't feel I do nearly enough of. I would love to, for example, live in one village and have one village church, as would have been the case years ago. And to be able to get to know every family really well, churchgoers or not, and just to be there as a friend, it isn't possible because of the many demands. Uh, so if I asked you the question, and I think I can imagine what many of your answers would be, there's not such a thing, is there, as a, an ordinary day in your life? I imagine it must be very diverse. But my question to you would be, 
how does it work when you've got quite a structured life of appointments you have to meet? How does it work, Stuart, when there is suddenly somebody who is in trauma or has had a huge sense of loss? How, how do you deal with that? I mean, are you in a position just to drop everything and go to them? Yes. Uh, yeah, we have to be as pastors and carers. And I will always put such need ahead of everything, often spiritually and emotionally. Uh, but we are, as a Church of England, we are there for the whole community. And to get back to your question, if I'm called on to go and support people in a crisis, I will cancel everything else and go there and be there. And I hope that people will call if they need help and support. I think they would. And I think listening to you today, I think, I think that's a very good message of encouragement. You know, it's funny because when you came in, if I'm blatantly obvious I, I, about what, I was, what my preconceptions were, I thought, oh, we're going to talk about my size and, you know, my sorry story. But actually, I found it incredibly uplifting because I was able to, to talk about my story, which I think most of the village know about, and actually not feel that you were being pious or going, oh, I'm so sorry. You were nothing but actually uplifted by it and, and, and my journey with, with my new broadcasting career. So uh, I'm one of your parishioners who is a, a fairly um, spasmodic visit to the, to the church, but I kind of, kind of, I just got a sense then of you as a man and um, I was very grateful for how that, that little chat we had came across. And as I said, it wasn't kind of this preconception that I think some people have about, you know, the vicar. So I'm grateful to you about that. I'm so grateful that you said that. Thank you, Tiggy. You're very warm and easy to talk to and very human also. You know, there's nothing I dislike more than anything that is, appears to be acting religious. In mm. fact, I'm not very religious. Mm. It's about being human and about real faith and uh, being friends to one another. And spirituality. I was, I was laughing with you earlier because, I, and again, I'll try and keep it brief, but I think I was telling you that my mother was just a very extreme atheist. So that in, in our family, even though they sent me to a Catholic school because nobody else would have me, which is another by story, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, on the day of her funeral, we found this little note in her desk that said, if anybody comes with a, what's the collar called? Clerical collar. With a clerical collar on, a clerical collar, that's not easy, that uh, my brother and I were to physically, robustly remove them from the service. And I was pretty sure a few would arrive and, and I, uh, I, I waited in terror at the front doors to have to do this. So it's lovely to be able to welcome you in my home today and not actually frog march you away. <laughs> oh. oh, well, thank you for your uh, toleration. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it is quite interesting being brought up. No, in but it. I mean, I would have loved you to meet your mother, and I would have <laughs> taken the collar off, and I would have teased her when I when we had been getting on really well. I would have suddenly produced the collar, and said, "Ha ha, I tricked you." <laughs> <laughs> and she would have loved that. She would have laughed like a drain, which actually I think is quite a good time to ask about you, okay. the man behind the clerical collar. The man who lives in Cheddar, in the vicarage there, is that right? Yeah, it's a new vicarage. Mm, it is. It's, it's not the old one by It's on the, the corner near King's, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, just by the War Memorial, the first house on the left. I know. Terrible for parking. Yes. It's not a very restful place. <laughs> Unlike here, which you said. Here's lovely. In my tree house. Yeah. Um, but Stuart, so 
just before we go into the massive library of hobbies of um, Stuart Burns, you, uh, you, you have your two sons with you, is that right? Yes. And have either of them followed you into the church? No, Tiggy, not at all. They are in their early 20s. Um, since they were young teenagers, they've been thinking for themselves. They're on their own journey of working out whether they have faith or not, and if they do, what kind of faith, which I respect. Unless um, something very unexpected and dramatic happens. I, there has never been a clergy person in my family that I know of, and I certainly don't think my sons will do that. Is there, is there a sense, because I think we mentioned this, didn't we, on our pre-chat, that this is quite common, that children of uh, a family that has somebody in the church, in, in their parent team, don't often... Do you think there is an element of that, them being overexposed to it, therefore they, they sort of not reject it, but maybe don't get drawn to it? Uh, sadly, yes, Tiggy. I think it's an occupational hazard. Mm. I know very few clergy who have teenage or adult children who are actively a part of the church. And if they are, they've often gone to uh, more informal churches. And this is the fun bit now, Stuart. We're going to find out the drug, sex, rock and roll part of your life. I can see you already looking slightly pink in the face. But genuinely and seriously, what are the sort of things that you might be doing? I know free time is something that is not a big thing on your calendar, but what sort of things might we find you doing? If I have time, and I do, I have a day a week when on a Friday, which is mostly free, and uh, I have the day to myself, and I will sleep for part of it to catch up. I will try to cook uh, a meal for myself and whichever of my sons will be home. I like to cook curry, Tiggy. Ah. Uh, because I was a curate, my very first church job in South Africa was in a community which was mostly people of Indian origin, and uh, they were converts from Hinduism, and I was a bachelor, and they asked me into their homes every day of the year uh, to eat the most wonderful curries, oh. and I got a few lessons. Uh, so I can cook quite a good curry using all the relevant ingredients, the spices and the bits of bark and the star anise. And... But Stuart, if we um, crept into your sitting room one night and uh, were watching over your shoulder, what sort of things might you be watching on television? I hope the Antiques Roadshow. Oh yes, I do. Good. Of course, I'd never good. miss it. Good. Uh, because you made it so yes, brilliant. Yes, I did. And that's your legacy. Um, I, I'm afraid I'm quite boring. I like to watch the BBC News Channel a lot. I'm a bit of a news junkie, which yeah. is probably not the best thing. I do like to watch the occasional Netflix series. For Game example, of Thrones? Uh, no, not that, actually. I've never mm. watched it, because, but I, did, I do think um, that there are some pretty good things. That I, on the shelves of my sitting room, I'm, I suppose I'm trying not to give the impression that I'm too serious, but I'm afraid I love the, the really heavy Russian authors. Yes. And I think my favourite book of all time is Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Oh, um, I just love that tight, pithy mm. Russian writing style. Yeah. And also they always deal with issues that are deeply moral or spiritual. Mm. And uh, I, I, yeah, that's the kind of book I, you'll find. I can see show. when you're... 
What would be, do you think, the most surprising thing that your parishioners don't know about you? Probably that my two best friends of all time, okay, one was a student who was in the room next door to me in the graduate residence when I was at university in England, and he was called Tiraman Hiwari, and he was a young Hindu priest from New Delhi, uh, doing research into Hindu philosophy. And uh, my other best friend is a chap called Brian, and he's uh, a Roman Catholic priest in South Africa. So maybe that's a surprise that. Uh, I have two people of very, very different spiritual traditions, uh, although not so much with the Roman Catholic. They are have been two of my very best friends. Well, I think that's lovely, because you certainly wouldn't necessarily... We've got a wagging tail in the back, because my Labrador's dreaming. <laughs> but you wouldn't get, you know, um, necessarily Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May uh, being kind of uh, a roommate, so to speak, would you? Um, so no, I think it's a credit no. to you that um, that you have such a diversity of friendships. Well, that's very nice of you to say, but Tiggy, it was also because Hiraman from New Delhi was a fantastic, brilliant curry cook. Oh, wow. Even on the floor of his little university residence room, uh, cooking over a little camping stove. Oh, wow. Well, Stuart, I know that you've got to get off, and I'm so, so grateful to you for giving me a podcast uh, and your parishioners of Draycott Diaries um, so much time today because it was really kind of you. You've come here and everything, and I hope you enjoy the programme when we edit it. And we really do look forward to um, coming and seeing you when you're the, you're the guy at the front. But hopefully when we see you just wandering around we will also come up and say hello and how much we enjoy you and I cannot tell you having meeting you today I just say to everybody out there if you see Stuart just go up and have a chat because he's a damn nice man. That's very kind of you Tiggy thank you for your friendliness and affirmation and I do love Draycott and uh, it's a lot more quiet and peaceful than Cheddar and I've enjoyed doing this this has been encouraging and stimulating for me. You have been listening to Draycott Diaries, recorded by me, Tiggy Trethowen. The editor was Rob Elliott, and the music arranged by Hugh Trethowen.